privilege we have to come together this Lord's Day evening, this Lord's Day afternoon, if you will, in which we have this privilege of not only song and prayer, fellowshipping one with another, and of course magnifying the name of God, but to enter into that activity at least in one way by consideration of His Word. By now, our series likely needs no further introduction in that we now come to the 24th installment in the series on the book of Revelation. That series that we began on the first Sunday evening in June, and we are now almost to December. In the course of this study, it might be interesting to at least set before us the interesting finality as she is quickly coming our way. This evening, we shall at least at one point begin the 22nd and final chapter of the Revelation. And in so doing, that likely means two weeks from this evening, we will draw to a conclusion this series on the study of Revelation. As we make note then tonight, coming to this 24th series, 24th lesson in the series, we shall notice yet again the new heaven and new earth. We began that admittedly last Lord's Day evening, and so tonight's lesson is a bit of a continuation. But as the Holy Spirit revealed unto John and encouraged him to write what he saw, we yet have another spectacular, in fact, magnificent vision of the holy city. And tonight, as we look at the closing verses of Revelation 21 and the first few of Revelation 22, we will gain yet another impression that we had not gained as of last Lord's Day evening. With those introductory remarks perhaps made, might I ask you to notice that by way of brief summary, we noted that as chapter 20 drew to its conclusion, we there saw a rather scary picture, as some of you shared it with me and Denise as you left the building, the view seen about those whose name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Their end is not pretty. In fact, it is, to use that word again, scary. To see that this lake of fire and brimstone awaits, and at that point the curtain closes upon those whose names are not written in the Book of Life. But God has two more chapters reserved to reveal to you and me the blessed end and what a hopeful and joyous one it is of those whose names are in the book of life. We saw, in fact, in chapter 21, last Lord's Day evening, that there are several descriptive terms for this holy city. It's called the New Jerusalem. It's called the New Heaven and New Earth. Regardless which one is employed, the meaning is tremendous and oh, how significant. As we saw some of the other features to be seen there, we specifically noted the following. Namely, that an angel specifically gave John some orders. In fact, those orders are shared with us in Revelation 21, verse number 9, where there the angel said, Come hither, and I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. This spectacular view shortly to be seen we learned that this was descriptive of the church in heaven, not on earth any longer, for the earth no more is by the time of our discussion of this chapter. In fact, not only did we see that, we noticed that this city was beautifully described. To specifically notice verses 11 and following, having the glory of God and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone clear as crystal. The wall to this city had 12 foundations. In addition to that, we saw it had 12 gates. All the while, we learned something about the names written on them, for the names are representative on the one hand of the 12 tribes of Israel, on the other of the 12 apostles, reminding us that all of the saved shall find their eternal habitation here, whether they be those in the ancient Old Testament era or those even in the New Testament gospel ministration. Either way, those whose names are in the book of life 
will find their eternal destiny and their eternal abode in this marvelous place. One of the last points on that screen brings us to the beginning of the lesson tonight. At this point, I would invite you to turn with me to Revelation 21, and may we begin reading in verse 15. Having looked through the first 14 verses last Lord's Day evening, let us conclude that chapter by reading verses 15 through 27. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the wall thereof. And the city lieth forth square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed twelve thousand furlongs, the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof and hundred and forty and four cubits according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth chrysoprasus, the eleventh a jacinth, the twelfth an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Beginning in verse 15, the angel, the one who had given John the instructions of our lesson last Lord's Day evening, continued to speak. In addition to encouraging him to come hither and see the Lamb's bride. Now in verse 15, this angel, as he spoke with John, quickly made note to him the fact that he had a golden reed. And with that, he was intending to measure the wall, the foundations, as well as the city. And in the course of that measurement, we will quickly learn some interesting lessons in just a moment. But notice some of the measurements are revealed to you and me. First, in verse 16, the city was four square. That means, for us, the breadth and the length, in fact, are equal. But in addition to that, in this, we notice that the height is also the same. And thus, we are under the description of a cube. The breadth, the length, the height, all being equal. And furthermore, we're told that each of the dimensions was 12,000 furlongs. What's more, the wall itself measured 144 cubits in breadth, apparently. The interesting features of all of that lead us to make some observations even at this point following verses 16 and 17. First, the unit of measure known as the furlong. That's a bit unfamiliar, most likely, to you and me. We're familiar with inches or perhaps yards or feet or miles or things like that. The furlong, here is the translation of the Greek word stadia, and it really means a measure of length about an eighth of a mile. And hence, as you and I appreciate this 12,000 furlongs, we can see that translates to about 1,500 miles. 
Immediately in conclusion, this was a gigantic city. 1,500 miles in its length and in its breadth as well as its height. To translate that to a literal consideration at least, that would be a city the size of which would cover about three-quarters of the present United States of America. Vast indeed. In a moment as we see some of the lessons to be drawn from the vastness of it, might I also return and let us consider the fact that each of its dimensions were, was the same. That alone perhaps leads us to see this. That height, notice, is exceedingly so. You and I are accustomed perhaps to objects that may in fact be high, but notice even if one considers a typical height at which an airliner flies, this is still over 226 times higher than that. Perhaps we might note this. It is clear from the language as we read it that this is not to be taken as the literal description of the sublime character of this holy city. For after all, who dwelled there? It's not physical beings any longer. Did not Paul remind us in 1 Corinthians 15 that there shall come a time when even those who happen to be yet alive when the Lord returns, even they shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And at that point, inhabit an incorruptible body prepared for the eternity that now stands before it. This is thus not a description of a physical place. It is the glorious spiritual abode of heaven forevermore. And the language reminds us that John described it in the best way that he was able to in description of that vision that he was seeing. Can we not also comment in this way? That vast size surely indicates that there's ample room and ample space for all who are deserving to be there. That is to say, all whose names are in the book of life. We need not be concerned that there's going to be cramped quarters in heaven, for it shall not be. Heaven, in fact, in its vastness and in its opportune presence, will have plenty of capacity for all whose names shall have been found in that Lamb's book of life. But note also, the dimensions of it are perfectly equal, reminding us of the fact that heaven is absolutely perfect. It shall not be marred like earthly cities are, tarnished with problems and various other sinful difficulties that plague earthly cities. This city is perfect in every regard. To see some aspects of that perfection, notice some of the statements, even from the Old Testament. Might we remember in, First King, in the book of 1 Kings, in terms of the equality of the dimensions, perhaps our mind races to the character of what was the description of the most holy place as it was first in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. In 1 Kings chapter 6, 7, and 8, we learn that its dimensions also, length, width, and height, were all equal. Wasn't that perhaps a foreshadowing of the impressive description here of the abode of God, absolutely perfect in all of its dimensions? Perhaps it was. But is it not also easy to see that just as surely as that holy of holies in the Old Testament could not be a physical containing place for God, for He's too great. So too, didn't Solomon remind us of that statement in, again, the book of 1 Kings, chapter 8, verse 27 and following? For even the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, Solomon said. Again, that helps us see this is not to be taken as a physical description, literally, of what in fact heaven shall literally be like. You and I, in spirit form at that point, shall see the beauty and magnificence and extravagance before us, perhaps like we cannot even hope to imagine now. 
In fact, to only amplify that point, notice about the wall. The breadth, some 144 cubits, that translates to 216 feet. Now, friends, the wall of China is great, but its breadth doesn't come close to this. Doesn't that indicate to us that if one were to imagine the security and the safety that the walls of the ancient time provided to their cities, isn't that an indication of the eternal safety and security vouchsafed to those who are blessed to be in the inhabitants thereof? Never shall a tempest, a foe, a storm, or any difficulty blow upon the eternal lives of those who are blessed to be a part of this heavenly abode. The nature of this wall, however, is described considerably further. And perhaps you noted with me in verses 18 through 20 the rather impressive detail given to us in our vision of the foundations of this wall. At this point, let us pause to briefly consider a picture. This again is one artist's drawing about this cubical city. You'll note it was the artist's intent to convey to us the fact that the height, length, and width are all equal. And furthermore, you might notice upon careful observation that there are three gates in each one of the two walls that we can see, presuming, of course, that there are an equal number of gates in the other two sides as well. Maybe another picture also would give us a different view. And it appears that one's not going to appear, as has happened more than once previously in this series. I only wish I knew exactly why that seemed to happen. But notice that other picture was one in which the viewpoint was a bit on the brighter side in that the golden aspect of it was a bit more easy, easily able to be seen. At this point, though, might we look somewhat interestingly at the description of, this, of, the, of the wall itself. Again, verses 18 and following. First, we're told the wall itself was of jasper. Verse number 18. It says in particular that the building of the wall of it was of jasper. And interestingly, the verse finishes by saying the city was pure gold like unto clear glass. If we compare that verse with verse number 11, we see that the wall itself had the same jasper construction as the entire city in John's vision. Now, what was this jasper of which we might well make note? At this point, you might consider with me that it would appear as near as we can tell from the language of the Greek, that would be for us typically a multicolored diamond. And hence, you and I can already imagine the exquisite radiance and the absolute brilliance of seeing a whole city that looked like one giant diamond. That's the way John's apparently describing it. Can you imagine with me just in your mind's eye the beauty of this place? Notice also, though, that that's just the beginning. For he says in verse 18, the city was pure gold like unto clear glass. Now gold, as we appreciate it, has a golden color, a very light bronze color, and indeed it too is rather precious and beautiful. But notice here, it doesn't have exactly that appearance, for it's like unto clear glass. Notice that indicates two things. One, the overwhelming character of spectacular beauty of this place, but also the fact it's clear glass, the absolute purity at the same time not tarnished with any impurity in any form. But notice, in verse number 19, John has more to say. The foundations of the wall were garnished, notice with me, with various manner of precious stones. 
Every stone listed here was exceedingly precious in the ancient world. And in fact, even in many instances, still precious today. To indicate a bit of the preciousness of these stones, I might ask you to notice one that is not present. Quite often in the sacred scriptures, both Old and New Testament, wherever one finds mention of gold, it's not unusual, at least nearby, to find mention of silver. Did you note in the reading that silver is not mentioned as any of the garnishments of the f walls, the foundations thereof of this structure? Now notice, silver, as special and as valuable as it was, these are all considered more valuable than it. Let's begin to look somewhat briefly at these stones. It would be fair to say at the outset, in some instances it's a bit difficult to determine with precision the exact match to that stone that we would consider today. These are the nearest that I was able to come for, for my study of the various literature of the time. First, we notice in verse 19 that the first foundation was jasper. We already noted that apparently was a diamond, very similar to the diamond that we'd consider today. Perhaps, again, though, one of the colored varieties thereof. Immediately, we might consider the diamond to be the hardest of the naturally occurring substances. In fact, even today, on the Mohs scale of hardness, a diamond is tin. No substance harder than diamond can you and I readily discover and find. The hardness provides an ample character to the foundation of this wall. But notice, secondly, we see in verse 19, sapphire. Might we note the bluish, beautiful hue of a sapphire? It would again appear that that was a very close kin to the sapphire that you and I would appreciate even still today. It might be noted that it goes on next to mention thirdly a chalcedony. Now that one is a bit of a new one, I suspect, but perhaps you might note some of its characteristics. It too was an exceedingly precious stone in the first century era. It had either a milky color or a gray appearance, and that beauty again was highly treasured and prized. Notice in the fourth place, an emerald, verse number 19. The emerald, it would appear, had that beautiful greenish hue or greenish tint to it. As this foundations of this wall are presented and garnished in this way, can you imagine now the contrast of the color with that beautiful consideration of jasper behind now and with it. Notice in the fifth place, we arrive now at the consideration of the sardonics, verse number 20. Again, that may be a bit on the new side to each of us, but notice it would appear that the sardonics had a very beautiful red and white mixture in terms of its color, and in terms of a stone similar to today, it was a somewhat of an agate type. Sixthly, there was the sardius, you might notice that the similarity of this name to the ancient city of Sardis, one of the seven churches of Asia, was there in Revelation chapter 3. That particular region was known for the appearance of this very prized and treasured stone, the Sardius. In terms of color, it was a red carnelian. That shining and brilliant red color is not a dull one in terms of its appearance, by the way. Very, very elegant and very, very brilliant in its, in, in its appearance. Notice nextly, we arrive at number seven, the chrysolite. This one, as near as I was able to tell, was basically a yellow topaz. It was exceedingly rare. Now, topaz by itself wasn't that difficult to, uh, to find, but a yellow one was exceedingly rare, and for that reason was extraordinarily valuable and precious. 
following the chrysolite was a barrel. Notice also in verse number 20, the barrel was again highly treasured, but it was pale green in its color. All of these lead us to next the topaz, which was number 9. It was greenish-yellow in its presentation. So notice it was not the same as that yellow topaz we just mentioned previously. The chrysoprasus, number 10. We should quickly think about a beautiful dark hue. In fact, darkness presented as perhaps on the edge of blue, perhaps somewhere between it and a purple. Very, very exquisite and beautiful in, it, in its look and in its brilliance. Number 11, we see the jacinth. Verse number 20, that jacinth, jacinth also was something that we might notice could be described again as a dark blue in his presentation. And finally, the amethyst, the very last one. Might we notice in it another violet color, perhaps bordering again with purple? To list all of them is to say the following. Hasn't the Holy Spirit done a rather magnificent chore in allowing us to at least try to envision the absolute beauty of this place as it was described here for John to see. This place that's the abode of those whose names are in the Lamb's Book of Life. At this point, I think it fair to say that the incomparable beauty and the exquisite character reminds us of a couple of statements found throughout the sacred text of the Old Testament could it not be noted, just as the Queen of Sheba did, that the half of it has never been told? I can well imagine that when you and I have the eternal privilege of ultimately visiting it and being there for ourselves, those words may in fact fall from our spiritual lips by that time. The half of it, John, was never told us. Does it not also remind us of Mark 8, verses 36 and 37, where on that occasion Jesus said, What shall it profit a man? if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Friend, we will have missed everything if we miss this place. For nothing on earth can compare to it. No particular treasure, no particular precious item, whatever it may be, can have the precious adornment and the exquisite eternal beauty of this heavenly city. Some of the reasons that close the chapter for its greatness is, of course, who is there. In addition to the saved of all the ages, notice some of the other wonderful beings, of course, that are there. I made note to us, at least on the screen, in verse number 22, there's something that John did not see. That would be seemingly so shocking, don't you think? For after all, wherever God was in terms of the characteristics of the Old Testament and you as well, One of the things that seemed so necessary was a place of meeting for his people to commune with him. However, John said, I did not see any temple in this place. No temple. What might that mean? It would seem that that identifies the following. What need would there have been for a temple? On earth, the tabernacle and temple served as their primary objective and purpose to allow mankind a place to fellowship and commune with God who himself was in heaven. But when you and I are there in his absolute presence, we will have no need to go to a certain place and there have communion with him. We can surround his throne and sing forevermore. We can be in the very place in that city where he is. Notice also some other things that were not there. Notice... No sun or moon. 
Why might that be? If this is a new heaven and a new earth, where's the sun and where's the moon? Doesn't that indicate to us again the fact this is not a remade planet earth in any sense? Certainly that's one indication. But notice the glory of God is the light of this place. And in fact, the light as is seen through the Son Himself. How reminiscent of is that of some of the words of Jesus. In John 8 verse 12, He said, I am the light of this world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And wasn't it said of John himself when he spoke of God in 1 John 1 verse 5, that in him is no darkness at all. The blessed light of God's presence, again shining forth through the sun, shall forevermore radiate and fill not only that place, but our lives forevermore with light. That's an exciting thought, isn't it? And when one speaks of the absence of night, doesn't that remind us that in so many instances the evil, ugly things of this earth take place at night? You see, when there's light present, it shuns that which is so often evil and bad, yet in the cloak of darkness is when evil and thieves and other matters arise, but there shall be no night there. No opportunities then for that which is bad, ungodly, filled with iniquity, opposed to that which is good. As chapter 21 closes, thus an appearance and an impression of what is there is again made. But also one more time, there's a notice of what is not. Notice yet again, the gates are never shut. Now we understand that from the imagery of the Old Testament, the closing of the gates was a very important matter. In fact, again, in that day, of course, the cities had walls which were there for their protection and security. However, the gates needed to be opened during the daytime for commerce and business traffic in and out of the city. Folks would need to go out and gather the crops which were outside, but bring them into the city, of course, to do their selling and for their homes were. Thus, the opening of the gates was significant, but they would be closed on the occasions of evening, and also on the various holidays, such as the Sabbath, they often would be closed. Notice here, the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. We see again the impressive access to this wonderful place. No one shall be forced to stay out who in fact is in need and has the impressive situation of being present as one whose name is in the book of life. To say all of that is to say that that chapter closes with that verse that Jason read for us earlier. Verse number 27. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Those that have had defilement in their life, those who thus have not used the blood of Christ to cleanse themselves will not find abode in this place. Yet one final time, though it may be sad for us to consider that many whom we know in this life will not be there. For they have not based their life upon the foundation stone of Jesus. And there is no other foundation for this life, 1 Corinthians 3.11. But yet how glorious a thought it is of those that shall be there. As chapter 21 closes, we come to the grand finale in the book of the Bible. The book of Revelation chapter 22. In this particular chapter, there is only 21 verses. But this evening, as we close our lesson tonight, I'd invite you to consider with me briefly the first five verses to lead us to that point. 
Notice this particular situation with me. Let us read the first five verses of that chapter. These verses so naturally seem to fit with chapter 21, which is why I chose to include them in this lesson. And notice he says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. And they shall see His face, and His name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. John saw a pure river, as clear as crystal, verse number 1, coming forth from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So, in the midst of this city, you and I, in a physical way, understand the need for water. Even the cities of the ancient time had to be constructed relatively near to some source of water. Here, we notice in the Holy Spirit's beautiful description is even a reference to a river that provides adequate sustenance in that way, even to this eternal city. Notice, but this river is exceedingly interesting. It doesn't come from a spring doesn't flow forth from a mountain per se, comes forth from the throne of God. Do we not easily again see the fact this is not a literal description of some city that we might hope to find here on earth? This particular description goes further in verse 2. For he says, in the midst of the street of it, and we might remember that street was described as that of pure gold, but in the midst of the street of it and on either side of the river was there the tree of life. And oh, how immediately our mind wells up with excitement as we consider the initial introduction of the tree of life in the Holy Scriptures and now the continuing saga of it and in fact the completion of the story. To notice some of the interesting things about it. Having read it, let's now look more interestingly at some of these observations. I've begun that listing at the bottom of this screen. I would suggest to you that this is the fruition of the ultimate hope of every Christian and of every interested follower of God, both Old and New Testament. The desire to be in the place described in the verses that you and I have just read. We've already seen its exquisite character in chapter 21, but notice now the pure river of the water of life. As we shall see later in this chapter, that'll have another interesting description, verses 8 through 11. That we shall see in part in the lesson next Lord's Day evening. But for right now, notice the glory and how reminiscent this is of Ezekiel 47. The second to the last chapter in that book of the major prophets. Even there, Ezekiel prophesied of that majestic and glorious future day when God himself shall provide all the water, the beautiful water needed for sustenance in his eternal kingdom. Jesus spoke about living water, did he not, in John chapter 4? To that Samaritan woman at the well, he even admitted, Had you asked of me, I would have given you water that would quench your thirst forevermore. And she, without hesitation, said, Give me evermore of this water. Can we not see the excitement that would well up in the thought of, say, a prisoner in the Roman Empire, who shortly would be taken out and marched forth to his death? And yet he reads in a book 
or has read to him the description of a place where there's a river of the water of life. And what's more, this tree of life to which one has access bears fruit year-round. Let's, in fact, look a little more carefully at this place about that tree of life. In specific character, verse 3 says, There shall be no more curse. What curse might be under description here? I would suggest to you this seems to take us back to the opening scene of the Bible. That particular picture is one artist's rendition of what one might look like looking through the gate into this city. If you look closely, perhaps you can see it, that there's trees on either side of that and there's the, a river that flows down the midst of it. That river, as it's described for us, you can see on either side the, the brilliant nature of this artist's picture of that city. I would suggest to you we might look one step further and see that that accursed thing seems to be a reference to Genesis chapter 3. When sin entered into the world due to Adam and Eve's choice to disobey God, what was one of the results and one of the decisions that God made in punishment? Well, first of all, it had to do in part with the cursing of the character of the earth, was it not? So that the earth would bring forth thorns and thistles, and man was given the sentence that in the sweat of your brow shalt thou eat bread until thou return to the dust. For out of dust wast thou taken, and unto the dust shalt thou return. Genesis 3.19 Thus God placed a curse, but will there be a curse in this holy city? In any sense, a curse that would be a sentence of punishment for separation from God? Of course not. This place shall have no more curse. And in addition, one of the other sentences that came forth in that, of course, was physical death. Adam was going to die. God had promised that in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. But yet we see in this place that there shall be no more curse. There shall be no more sentences placed upon man for his falling away, his choice of rebellion and disobedience. Now, what about the other reference in this that seems so beautifully placed? Is it not the case that that of which we now read is the conclusion to the story that was begun in the first book in the Bible? I've always found it remarkable how the Holy Spirit chose to use that same story to, con to, to conclude it. In Genesis chapter 3, as well as Genesis chapter 2, there is note made that there were two special trees in the garden. One of them was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That was the one of which Adam and Eve were not to partake. But there was also a tree of life. They had free access to the tree of life. They could partake of it, and from all indications, they would be able to live forever. In fact, in Genesis 3, verse 22, that's expressly what is stated after they had committed sin. For God, remember, cast them out of the garden and placed cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the way of the tree of life. You see, they did not need access to that tree any longer. They didn't deserve access to it. Notice the tree of life mentioned there. How does that relate to the tree of life mentioned here? Could it not be summarized this way? What we lost in Adam, we gained in Jesus. Due to the sin that Adam and Eve brought into the human family and the sins that all have committed since, man was apart from the tree of life. He was not in the sentence of physical flesh able to live forever. 
And under the sentence of that separation from God, even spiritually, he was dead. Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2. However, again, what we lost through Adam, we gained through Jesus. For through the blessed nature of the Son, we have access to a place where there is a tree of life, and its fruit is available forevermore. And in that fruit, as we participate and partake of it, never again is there separation. Never again is there death. Isn't it fascinating to read again verse 2? In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits. That alone is another indication that this is not a literal tree, for no literal tree can bring forth twelve different kinds of fruit. And furthermore, it yielded her fruit every month. And what's more, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. You see, you and I, once we enter those pearly portals of heaven, will have access in a symbolic figurative fashion to a tree of life which will result in eternal life. What Adam and Eve could have had, but they chose to, to rebel. You and I in that blessed place will have what they longed to have once they'd lost it. Maybe we can see that there are just a couple more statements. First, we notice in verses 3 through 5, that the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. Doesn't that remind us of the closing verse in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 48, 35, where there it is one more time said, God shall be in it. And notice with God being there, verse 4, they shall see his face. The grandest hope thus of every disciple and follower of God to see his face. We might notice that that's a privilege that to this point has not been vouchsafed to anyone. For John reminded us in John 1.18, No man has seen God at any time. But there's coming a time. Oh yes, there's coming a time. When you and I will be in the absolute sublime presence of the august, awesome God of heaven and His face we will see. That's what John saw. In addition... Notice that in their foreheads was written God's name, standing in direct contrast to what was in the foreheads of those in Revelation 13. Recall that the mark of the beast was on their forehead, there or on their hand. Such is not the case of these. God's name is in their forehead, for they have been his devout follower. They have been his dedicated disciple. They have been those interested in pursuing his will and his cause. God's name is in their forehead. Perhaps in light of those thoughts, we could now make these summary statements to the lesson this evening. Namely, that New Jerusalem is this beautifully perfect city, this place in which the church shall abide forevermore, the church in heaven. The excitement as it wells up within us reminds us of all the good that will be there and all the evil that shall long since have been forgotten. Can we not be reminded that the goodness and the exquisiteness of all those stones that we studied, the preciousness thereof is just a reminder of how precious this place ought to be in my life and yours. To do whatever is necessary to ensure that our name is written in that Lamb's book of life. Was it not Peter who admonished, make your calling and election sure? We can know that we're saved and we can also know that we're lost. In fact, John wrote in 1 John 5, 13, the very same John that wrote this book, said, These things are written that you might believe. And not only that, that you might know that you are saved. Tonight, do you know that you're saved? Are you absolutely certain of it? 
You can be. All of us can be. And in the awareness of that idea, we can understand too when we're separate and apart from the will of God, having failed in such ways that we are not under the protective custody of the blood of His Son. This evening, in light of the lesson that we've studied about heaven itself, aren't you excited about the thought of being there some sweet day? When, after the day of judgment and all the remnants of judgment are finished, when there shall be pronouncement upon those in the Lamb's book of life, enter into the joys of thy Lord. Matthew 25, verse 21. If you want to be amongst that number, and certainly we all do, we need to make certain of it. Jesus gave the plan of salvation by which one could have his name entered into that book. He commanded that we believe upon him. We repent of our sins. We confess his sweet name as the only begotten Son of God. And we're baptized for the forgiveness of sins. If we might assist you in accomplishing the latter two of those steps tonight, not only would it be a happy occasion for us, it would be eternally happy for you. What's more, if we could aid you in your rededication to the cause of the Savior, so that again your name could be rewritten into a book from which it has now been erased, come back to that first love. We'd be more than happy and excited to aid you again in your public response. If either of those would be the need of your life this evening, will you not let that be made known even now while together we stand and while we sing?